Um, before I get started, I want you all to know that next Sunday night at 5, uh, so I'm talking March 15th, next Sunday night, we're having an equipping night for our gospel communities. Um, that's going to start at 5 p.m. So we're having like four of these nights this year, two in the spring, two in the fall, that will be designed to strengthen our gospel communities in Malden and Melrose. We want to be uh, people who are growing to believe the gospel in every area of life and who have the privilege of helping others do the same. So we're doing four nights this year specifically designed to strengthen our gospel communities in that way. Um, we're trying to make them just as enjoyable and as easy to get to as possible. So between that period from 5 to 7.30, we will share a meal and we are providing childcare downstairs. So that's something that all of our... Um, we're expecting the people who are like significantly leading these to be there, but it's really open to the entire church. Um, so I would love to have any of you that can make it be there. So Sunday night next week, if you are intending, because we're doing the child care and food, please let me know so that we're appropriately prepared. But there's no, um, there's no other restriction, so we would love to have as many of you there as possible. You can expect a time of teaching, shared meals, some Q&A you'll be hearing. Uh, some ba- best practices from our other leaders there. Um, so that is next Sunday at 5. Okay. Since the beginning of September, we've been looking at the relentless advance of the gospel in the book of Acts. And in Acts 8, the persecution of the church begins following Stephen's murder. And it results in a great scattering. So we see disciples running north to Judea and running south to Samaria, and everywhere they go, they are talking about Jesus. And God is using the persecution to cause the good news of the gospel to advance into these new regions. So now in chapter 9, where we're going to be today, we see the gospel continuing to advance, but not on a macro region-wide level, but on a personal level. We're going back to a character that we heard from just a little bit before, but only briefly, a man called Saul. So the last time we heard from Saul, he was present at Stephen's murder right at the end of chapter 7. Saul was like the coat checker at that murder. He was the one holding the coats of everyone who needed to get their arms free to throw rocks at Stephen. And as the disciples scattered following that murder, Dr. Luke, who's writing this book, says that Saul was actually at the forefront of this persecution. Not only did he approve of the murder of Stephen, But Saul was, Luke says, ravaging the church. And he was entering house after house and dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. But then after that description of Saul, the rest of chapter 8 is taken up with this joyful advance of the gospel into Samaria and into, uh, into other regions as the gospel is spreading out from Jerusalem. But chapter 9 is reminding us the church still has this enemy, this man called Saul. So we're zooming in on his story right now. The text says, But Saul, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, He approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, 
why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Let's pray. We'll get to work in this text. Spirit, we ask right now that you would cause our eyes to see and behold Jesus in this text. Would you open up uh, my mouth to deliver these words and help us to hear and uh, receive them as straight from you? Amen. Saul is still breathing threats and murder against the disciples. The image here is almost of a rabid man, consumed with hatred. That word breathing, it's almost like he's foaming at the mouth. And in fact, he has so much venom towards the disciples that it wasn't enough for him to just drive them out of Jerusalem. He's actually done that successfully. He's now looking to expand the reach of his persecution. He's looking to open up the scope of his influence so that he can capture more Christians. So let me try and illustrate this to just so we can understand how wild this actually is. A lot of you know Kevin and Bridget Luce, our missionaries that the church has sent to Africa. Kevin and Bridget are involved in um, equipping church planners all over the continent. If you know Kevin very well, you know that he's not exactly... He has not exactly been like an early adapter to the digital age. Kevin's not the most technologically advanced person. And if you're in a meeting with Kevin, he's the guy when it's time to schedule something and everyone pulls out their phones. Kevin reaches into his bag and has like one of those big day timers that his bank gave him. He's got all this paper and he starts writing stuff down. He's not, he's never been quick with the digital, digital age, but he's always been someone who's very passionate about the expansion of the gospel. So when he was living in Medford and serving with us, he was forever requesting that someone would create for him this giant paper map of the, the cities north of Boston. He wanted this giant map to hang on the wall of the church, and then he could stick like little push pins in it for gospel communities or people that he was praying for or church plants. He wanted this big visual and we would always say to him, Kev, it's like 2012, we're not buying you that map. But, but I get like that too. When I look at a map, I don't want the big thing on the wall, but when I look at the cities north of Boston, I can't help thinking about all the places that I would like to see the gospel take root in in deeper ways. So when I look and I see Burlington and I see Salem and I see Watertown and I see Methuen and I see East Boston, I think... Those towns need great churches, or they need more great churches. I can't wait until a day that we get to plant there, or that someone starts a great work in those cities. Here's what I want you to see, or why I'm mentioning this. Saul is the exact opposite, okay? Saul is the anti-planter. He's actually like an exterminator right now. He hears just a rumor that the disciples may have reached Damascus, and he wants to go there and stamp it out. That's where he's at. 
Damascus is 135 miles from Jerusalem. This is the first century. There is not a quick way to get 135 miles. But he's not content with the work that he's currently doing to exterminate the gospel in Jerusalem. He's not, he's not content with just terrorizing the locals. So he makes this thing going on 135 miles away his problem. He feels like he needs to expand his reach. So he goes to the high priest and he asks him to give him some letters. Basically, those letters are like hunt, hunting licenses or permits. They are granting him permission so that if this rumor is true, if he finds anyone belonging to the way, if he finds anyone who belongs to Jesus, men or women, he has permission from the high priest to capture them and bring them bound back to Jerusalem. So I just want you to see how inconvenient and intense this journey actually is. This is not like on Saul's job description that he has to go up there. He's on a mission to exterminate the advance of the gospel as it's moving north to Damascus. He's gone to the pains of developing a strategy and he's getting permission to implement it. So this is a man who already has blood on his hands. He's already rabidly opposed to the Christians and he's actively seeking to expand the reach of his persecution. He's heard whispers that the gospel is moving north. And he has to go up there to stamp it out. And the text tells us that as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. I love that little phrase, as he went on his way. He went on his way to Damascus to capture and imprison the disciples of Jesus. I had an appointment this week in the Haverhill Methuen area. It was one of those places that I've been to like once or twice. But you know how sometimes you've been to a place once or twice and you're not precisely sure where it is? But I was using an app on my phone for directions and I got on 93 North and then my phone died. So I didn't know exactly where the meeting was, but I'd been there like once before. So I wasn't worried. I thought, it'll, it'll look familiar. I don't know the exact direction, but I can eyeball it. So I'm going down the road doing that thing that you do as you pass exits where you look you kind of look a little bit ahead and see the, see the businesses around and try and sense like intuitively whether it looks familiar. And I started doing that thing to see if those businesses looked right. And I kept driving past exits and squinting a little bit and saying, no, that, that's not the one. It's got to be the next one. So I was sure it was still in front of me and I was going on my own way. And then suddenly a light from heaven flashed in front of me. And I saw a sign, welcome to New Hampshire, live free, <laughs> live free or die. I was going on my own way, right, fully convinced that I could figure out how to get there until I received a revelation in the form of a road sign. So apparently I don't know where the Starbucks in Methuen is, but I do know that it's not in New Hampshire. And I had to reverse my course. I was, I was given a revelation and had to reverse my course. And the reason I say that is, we need to see that when Jesus meets Saul, it wasn't because Saul was seeking him. Saul was like us. Every one of us. Saul was going on his own way. 
he was fully, completely convinced of the rightness of his cause, he was going on his own way. He wasn't in crisis. He wasn't contemplating a major life change. He wasn't having some sort of existential moment. He was going to Damascus with a team of guys to carry out a specific purpose. And then suddenly, a light from heaven flashes. He didn't know, and he wasn't prepared. He didn't know that Saul, the persecutor, is about to become Saul, the proclaimer. And then suddenly, in an instant, in a moment, a light from heaven flashed around him. So that light was not like the light when you pull open the shades on a sunny day. It's not like the light when you go camping and you're in the dark in the woods and someone points a flashlight in your eyes. It's not like the light when you're, you know, you're at a holiday and everyone's taking family pictures and the flashbulbs are making your eyes turn blue. That's kind of light. This was an entirely different kind of light. So what Saul saw was not just a really bright light. He saw the light of Jesus Christ. When the Apostle John sees Jesus in the book of Revelation, he says that Jesus was like the sun shining in full strength. So the light that Paul sees, not a bright light, it's the light that comes from the one who says, let there be light. And when that light flashes, Saul goes down and everyone with him goes down. They all get a zero in the sun stare. They just fall straight to the ground. And Saul hears a voice from heaven speak to him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul's on the ground, right? He's clueless. He's totally disoriented. He's blinded. But he does know that he's encountered something completely other, something divine. So he says, Who are you, Lord? And the voice says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So there is some incredible weight in those words. First, Jesus is so identified with his church that when the church is being persecuted, Jesus says it is he himself who's being persecuted. I want us just to feel that incredible level of solidarity that Jesus has with his church. He is its head. The church is his bride. When the church is suffering, Jesus is suffering. So there's incredible comfort in those words that Jesus knows the suffering of the church, that he's actually suffering with us, and that he identifies with the church. But I want us also to feel the incredible weight of these words is they just detonate in Saul's brain. He has been zealous in his persecution of the church, and now he's encountering Jesus, and he is realizing that his opposition has been entirely, completely, 100% misguided. He has been going on his own way, fully convinced of the rightness of his cause, and then his sin just gets laid bare before him. So in seven words, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Saul's entire framework for understanding his life has just been shattered. He's no longer zealously fighting the enemy. 
Now all of a sudden he realizes he is the enemy. And his life is now littered not with righteous indignation against some rebel religious uprising. No, it's littered with unspeakable acts of violence against Jesus and his church. This is what you call a plot twist, right? Everything has just shifted on him. Saul's on the ground, broken. So now what happens? What does Jesus say next? Does he say, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting? Think about what you've done. Does he say, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting? Here's the punishment that you're going to receive. Does he say, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting? Here's the process for reforming your ways. No, he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and get up. A wicked man encounters the blazing glory of God and in seven words, his sin is fully acknowledged and he is told, rise, get up. Enter the city. You'll be told what to do. There's no ignoring, right? There's no ignoring or underselling of Saul's past. But he is told to rise. And it isn't because what he's done has been insignificant or Jesus, Jesus is sweeping it under the carpet. In fact, it cannot be atoned for by Saul himself. Jesus is the only one who can say to him, rise and get up. Because Jesus is the only one who can atone for sins. See, what I, want you to, what I want you to understand here is that there is a sense in which this conversion is an era-forming reality where Jesus himself encounters the man who is going to go on and become the foremost apostle of the, church, of the first century. So there is that level where, yes, Saul is becoming a persecutor and turned into a proclaimer. Jesus is turning the exterminator into a church planter. But there's a second level where I need you to see that this story is also absolutely universal. See, we're in this story too. We are all going on our own way. Self-righteous. Self-assured. Not knowing what we don't know. And for us, the light that comes from heaven might be a sudden flash or it might be a slow dawn. But without that light, make no mistake, without that light, we are utterly and completely blind. And then when the light flashes and our sin is exposed, we're left helpless, on the ground, like Saul, blinded. And when our sin is exposed, we're in limbo, laying on the ground. It's not correctable. It can't be undone. Because our problem is not that our behavior has been a little bit misguided and we need to tweak it, or that we just need some new information and then we can correct course. Our problem is that in sin we are actually enemies of God. And we hang there, right on the edge of the exposure of our sin and the command to rise. That's us in our sinful state. There's no getting up on our own. Our sins laid bare right there before the light of God. And in this story, there's some of us who have 
never actually responded by falling on the mercy of God. Or you might feel like the weight of an ongoing, repeated sin has actually permanently left you forever lying on the ground. And you want to get up, but you can't. See, the only reason Saul could get up is because he was told to rise by Jesus, who atoned for all of his sins. He was told, rise, get up. The journey of faith continues. You will be told what to do. But Jesus is the only one who can tell him that. We can't make ourselves rise. So those of us that know church history know that some years later, Saul would become Paul and would write a good portion of our New Testament. And he wrote Ephesians, which we read at the start of the, at the, start of the service. Ephesians is one of the most amazing theological treatises ever written. But when Paul wrote these words in Ephesians, he was not explaining an abstract concept. He wasn't just writing simply a theological idea. There's a lot of biography here. There's a lot of autobiography here. When he says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You were dead. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. These are the words of the most significant apostle in church history. But it's not just some abstract idea up in the sky. Saul was himself dead in his trespasses, going his own way. He's talking about something that's personal and universal at the same time. But God the light from heaven flashed. He was made a proclaimer. He was made a planter. The story's not done there. The text tells us that Saul's companions stood speechless. And they heard the voice of Jesus, but they didn't see him. Saul is able to get up, but he's not able to see yet. And these men had to lead him into Damascus, holding his hand. And he finds himself in a town that he had come to seek out and ravage the Christians. And now one of those Christians is coming alongside of him to help him, to pray with him, and help him see again. And when Ananias, whom Saul would have been trying to capture, comes along, Ananias lays his hands on Saul and tells him to receive the Holy Spirit. And the blindness disappears. And Saul is baptized. But I'm going, to let, I'm going to let Cruz tell you about that part of the story. That's where Saul is headed here. Well, let me finish off with one final point of application here. If you had known Saul, you would have said, I did not see that coming. Saul did not look like someone who was on the verge of faith in Jesus. There are people in all of our lives right? Who we look at and say, she's never going to believe the gospel. 
he's never going to repent. We tend to assess their lives and their spiritual states from our perspective, and then we lose hope and we get discouraged, we despair, we give up. We can get there on an individual level with friends and family, with people that we love. We can get there on a cultural level with the places that we live in. I was talking to one of my good friends recently about Jesus, and he looked at me and said, you should spend your time talking to someone else. That can be discouraging, that type of talk. We are not called to evaluate the probability of other people coming to faith. See, when Jesus saves us, he does not make us like Christian actuaries. We don't need tables of probabilities and percentages because God is the one who says, let there be light. God is the one who sends the sudden flash. We know that we can ask boldly for friends, for neighbors, for people that we love, for cities and countries, that suddenly a light from heaven would flash. This text should call us to great faith and great hope. We don't need the tables of probabilities and percentages because God can save anyone. I hope you see that in this text. And he gives us good news, and we're privileged to share that generously. So what's our job in that? We're the ones that live full of faith as glad recipients of the grace of God, that pray boldly and that ask God that the light of the gospel, in the, the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ would shine into the hearts of those around us who do not yet know him. See, Saul went to Damascus to stop the birth of the church. But by the time he gets there, he's a believer who finds himself in Damascus. And this isn't yet, like if we're in the story, this is not yet the guy that's brilliant and theologically educated and that has received all this revelation from God. There's massive amounts of things that he doesn't yet know. And there's much of his past that people are going to ask him to answer to. But the text tells us by verse 20 that his message in Damascus was very simple. He proclaimed Jesus and he just said, He is the Son of God. Jesus is the one who turns his enemies into friends. He turns persecutors into proclaimers. He turns exterminators into ones who tend to the church of God. And that should give us great great hope. Let's pray. Jesus, we read this text and we think about the amazing nature of this story. And For some of us, the time when the light came on in our own hearts. Pray that that would always be cause for great rejoicing and great hope that we have towards the people around us. So I pray that rejoicing and hope would well up in us as we think on these words. We pray this in your name. Amen.